Hey, this is Jared Wellman. I'm the lead pastor at Tate Springs, and this is our podcast. God is telling a story of hope and redemption. Hope and redemption. Redemption that can only be found through Jesus Christ. I hope that this is a blessing and inspires you to discover your part in God's story. Good morning. Go ahead and take your copy of God's Word with me and turn to the book of Romans as we begin this new series called When in Rome. And as you're you're doing that, let me tell a, a story from a, a few years ago. I was in uh, Israel. Amanda and I were traveling uh, together, and this, this has actually been quite a bit now that, now that I'm thinking about it uh, in front of all of you. And uh, it was right before we had uh, Hannah, and so it's probably been a decade ago. And so if you've ever been in Israel, particularly in the Jerusalem area, uh, the, the roads are are kind of windy and they're, and they're hilly. And, uh, and as we were on that road, uh, Amanda started not to feel very well. And so we stopped for lunch and, and we needed to get back to the hotel just to, to really rest for the rest of the day. And, uh, and so the tour bus, we ate and they said, okay, uh, this is the name of the hotel. We're gonna go finish the day. And so here we are in, uh, in a different country and I don't know how to speak uh, the language. Uh, I don't know uh, anything about the roads. I don't know how to get transportation. And we're sitting there and we're just like, okay, we have to find our, our way back. And I was thinking about that story or that, that experience this past week as I was preparing for the sermon because I think that the early Christians in Rome felt like that spiritually whenever they were looking around at the roads of Rome and they were, they were listening to the, the thing that people were talking about and they were watching the things that, that people were doing and they started to, to realize that what, they, that what they believed and what they uh, were taught were very different from the things that they were seeing happen all the way around them. And listen, the same is true for you living in modern day America, and the same thing is true for me. That when we as followers of Jesus look around at all of the things that are happening in the world, we can't help but wonder, how are we supposed to navigate our way through this? How are we supposed to make our way through this? And so the big question before us this morning is this, how can we demonstrate that we live in Christ while we are in our own proverbial Rome? And so here is today's sermon in a sentence, you ready? Through Rome's roads we roam, but in Christ we find our home. Let's read the two verses this morning as we introduce this new book together. Romans 1, we're going to look at verse 1 and 7. Uh, these are kind of the, uh, if you're looking uh, at a sentence and it's got parentheses, uh, this is the opening and the closing, if you will. We're just going to look at those two little marks today as we introduce this sermon series. So verse 1 says this, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, jump down to verse seven. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you just bow your heads with me as we ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word that we, we hold in our hands. Thank you for preserving it all over all of these years, and thank you for this book that you have given us that we call the book of Rome, Romans. And Lord, we thank you for Paul. We thank you, Lord, for his faithfulness to write down what you told him to say. And, and Lord, as we live in this modern-day iteration of the Roman Empire that we call the United States of America, and as we, uh, we look at what you, the instructions and the inspiration and the things that you said and gave to the early church in Rome, Lord, I know that it is applicable to us living today. 
And so I pray for our eyes to be opened. I pray for our hearts to receive your word. And I pray that you would just help us, Father, as we, as we unpack this together. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The first thing I want you to see in our text is this, that though we are in Christ, those of us who have confessed Jesus as Lord, though we are in Christ, we are in a, in a sort and a sense of Rome. We are living in a, in a Roman time, if you will. So we're going to look at verse 7 where he says, To all who are beloved of God, where? In Rome. Now, literally, obviously, Paul is writing to the Christians in a literal Roman empire during this time. But what we're going to see throughout the course of this is that what Paul said to them back then applies to us today. So let's talk a little bit about the history of Rome and some of the things that they believed and some of the things that they did. And let's just kind of compare and contrast for just a few minutes before, before we start unpacking some of the things that are more applicable specifically to those of us who have confessed Jesus as Lord. Now, Rome, by legend, was founded by a couple of twin brothers uh, Romulus and Remus, uh, in uh, the 8th century BCE. And it was founded ultimately or initially as a monarchy, and then it, it became a republic, and then it eventually morphed into an empire. And we're not going to get into all of uh, the ins and outs of how that happened. That's not really important for us today to know. But some of the names that you've heard before, Julius Caesar, uh, when he died, that was around the time when the Republic was ending. And then we had the first uh, emperor who is uh, Augustus Octavian. And so it was during the Roman Empire time where, where Rome, this idea of Rome, uh, culminated into this climactic moment in its history where it ruled the entire world. That is when Jesus was born into the world. And that is when the book of Romans was written. And so all the things that we're gonna talk about in the next few minutes that Rome is and that Rome endorsed and that Rome abided in, this Roman empire that Paul is writing this letter to, to the Christians living in Rome, it, it really has to do with all of these different things. So I want to focus on the religious aspects of Rome and the moral issues happening in Rome. And so when it comes to religion, the Romans had this thing called the Roman, the Roman uh, pantheon. And that was their way of talking about their godhead, if you will. All of the different gods that they believed in. And, uh, and the Romans, they, uh, their religious values encompassed a wide array of different kinds of deities, of gods and goddesses. And many of these were uh, adopted and adapted from other people groups, specifically from the Greeks. And so if you have studied world history at all, then you're going to know that there are Roman gods and Greek gods, and they are the same gods with different names. It's because when the Romans uh, overtook the Greeks, they took their gods and just added them to their, to their uh, pantheon. And so the way that you would describe this apologetically is to say that they were uh, syncretistic in, in what they believed. And, and really what that means is that you bring in all these little ingredients from all these different cultures, from all these different things, and, and that is, is what you believe. And so it's not like what, what we as Christians believe, where there's this, this historic traditional faith that we have traced throughout history that now we call Christianity. Syncretism is to take a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Hinduism, a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of atheism, whatever it is, put it together and create really your own kind of religion. And so in the, Roman, uh, in the Roman pantheon, there were about 15 major deities. There were countless minor deities, and all of them were parsed out. 
Because no single God in their, in their worldview and in their, their pantheon was all-powerful. And so they had the God of the sea, and they had the God, God of art, and they had the God of love, and they had the God of war, and they had the God of the sky. They had all these different deities that they kind of parsed out. And eventually, even the Roman Empire emperors themselves came to be understood as gods. And so there was this blurring of the line between an emperor and a deity himself. And so they had all of these different uh, deities, and that is what you call syncretism. Now, there is a book called Our Secular Age, or This Secular Age, written by uh, a, a Canadian, Ian, wherever you are, um, named Charles Taylor. And, um, and uh, it is a, it, it's an outstanding book when it comes to analyzing what is happening in the West, and it's, 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 a, it's a really thick read, uh, and it's a, a long, heavy read, but it really does a great job, and it was published around 2007, telling us why we are where we are when it comes to the different things that we're seeing happening spiritually and religiously. And essentially what he describes is what he calls the Nova Effect. And the Nova uh, Effect is uh, really the idea that if you go back and you just think about the scientific revolution and you think about everything that was happening, what's known as the modern period. The modern period is when uh, science began to answer all of the questions that we ever had about life itself. So we, we no longer needed anything spiritual because now science was filling in all of the gaps for us. Where did we come from? Well, science gives us the answer. Uh, why are we here? Well, science gives us the answer. And so slowly what you saw were the Roman gods and the Greek gods and the pantheon just kind of start uh, ultimately to, to get cast by the side. And you have some who are so atheistic and anti-God that they say that there's no reason for God at all because we have science. Of course, as Christians, we know that there would be no such thing as science without God. And so they use science to get rid of the one who created him to begin with. Nevertheless, what happens in this, uh, in, in Taylor's book, is he begins to talk about um, all of these different things that have happened because as everyone was watching the way that the West was unfolding and they were watching the way that the world was unfolding, everyone prophesied and thought that there would be a day in our day, today, that there would be no religious people. That people would say there's no need for God because now we have science and we have answers and we have rationalizations for everything, so there's no need for the miraculous anymore. There's no need for the the supernatural. But of course, that is not what has happened. I remember 20 years ago when I first, uh, my first full-time responsibility in ministry was to serve as a hospice chaplain. And, and I remember during that time, right around 2000, when, when uh, the organization was afraid that they would lose funding for spiritual care. And so every year they were trying to justify the fact that they had a chaplain on their staff. It was a Christian organization. And, uh, and they were afraid that that was going to get funded, uh, pulled. And now fast forward 20 years later, and not only are chaplains welcomed into such organizations, but there are classes that teach for nurses uh, at Grand Canyon University and others that teach the spiritual side of healthcare. And so what has happened even in the last two decades in our country and in the world that has really brought in the idea of spirituality? Well, what's happening is this, is that we have had this nova effect of, of all of these ingredients, of all of these different spiritual things happening in the world where people are bringing in all of their different kinds of deities into their life. And in Greece, there was this place called the Agora, and it was um, a place where a central gathering place, a hub of commerce, politics, and discussions, and you could go there 
and you could listen to this perspective and that perspective and you could take what you liked and, and bring it into your own soul for whatever worldview you wanted. Well, here's what's happened in the last 20 years that has kind of brought our own kind of uh, agura here and it's this. It is the idea uh, of social media and the internet and the digital space that we have. And so there's been something that's happened in history that a lot of people didn't see happening, and now religion has become a marketplace rather than a faith. And so the internet has taken information, and it just gives it out to anyone who wants it, providing instant access to a wide range of spiritual teachings of traditions and practices from around the world. And so if you're someone who is looking for meaning in your life, you can pull up YouTube and you can explore Buddhism. If you want to know about the Kabbalah, you can pull it up and download an ebook on it. And so it's like we're walking into the store and we say, well, I like this component of this religion and this component of that religion. And we have websites and podcasts and courses and forums, all of these different things in the world that we can bring in. And what's happened is this, is that people are more spiritual than they've ever been before without being religious. Just listen to the language. Everyone is spiritual now. There's a theological reason for this, by the way, and it's because we are made in God's image. All people are made in God's image. And so we have this thing called a soul that is made for God. And so people understand that there is a spiritual element to the world in which we live that science really can't ascertain. And so people are looking for meaning, and as they look for meaning, they begin to look in all the wrong places. And so they are spiritual, but they're not necessarily religious. And faith becomes something that's individual, not something that's based on traditions, and certainly not something that's communal. There's a lot of spiritual people in Arlington, Texas. A lot of spiritual people right now who are not sitting in any kind of organized religion like this because it doesn't exist, because they have conjured up their own kind of spirituality in their own kind of marketplace. They've went shopping, if you will, with a shopping cart and they pulled in this ingredient and that ingredient from all these different religions. And so a lot of people like to say that the United States of America is a Christian nation. Listen, there is no evidence that the United States of America is a Christian nation. Our tax dollars go to support things that are anti-Christian, all right? We are a syncretistic nation, just like Rome was. We are closer to the Roman uh, pantheon than we are to Christianity when you really start to break it down. And, and what's happening is there's this moral ambiguity because of that. And we see the lines so blurred with how people are living out uh, their lives in politics, which we're about to talk about, and how people are living out their lives in the workplaces, and how people are living out their lives in relationships. And, and because there's a moral ambiguity that is rooted in their own spirituality that they've quite literally just made up. And so when we start to turn from the religion uh, to the moral issues that happened in Rome, let's just kind of walk through a few of those. Remember, we're looking at verse 7 in Rome, to the Christians in Rome. What were some of the things that those Christians dealt with? Well, one of them was slavery. Slavery was, was part of the law of the Roman Empire. It was deeply entrenched into the institution of Rome. And slaves uh, were prisoners of war. They were brought in from traitors. Some of them were even born into it. And in America, it goes without saying that we know that part of our history includes the, the lawfulness of slavery and then the lawfulness of Jim Crow. And we've, we've walked through those things as a country. 
And then sometimes we'll say, well, we've solved the problem of slavery. We've moved on from that. But did you know that statisticians say that there are more slaves today in the world than ever before in human history because of human trafficking? By some estimates, 40 million people right now are enslaved because they've been abducted. I lived in Odessa for a while. Highway 20 was a, was a highway of, of human trafficking. And so uh, we, there are estimates that, that say that there are more slaves today than ever before in history. In our own country, we see that. What about uh, gladiator games in the Colosseum? Well, in uh, the Roman Empire, these were combats. They were brutal spectacles that included slaves and prisoners and even volunteers to fight to the death. Why? For our entertainment. So we would go to the Colosseum and we watch two people made in the image of God take weapons and just slaughter one another. And, and it raised questions about human, the value of human life. Now, when you think about our country and you think about, well, what's, what's comparative between modern day America and the Roman Empire when it comes to that? Uh, well, at least one of the things is MMA fighting. Now, I'm going to make some people upset with where I'm going with this. UFC. Two people made in God's image who get paid, and it's not apples to apples, but it's very similar, it's at least not dissimilar, who go into an arena with the sole intent of seriously harming someone else, maybe even with the intent of death. And so early Christians like Justin Martyr and Tertullian, they would actually, these early Christian apologists, they would actually write and encourage Christians not to go to the Colosseum, not to spend their time and their money to endorse things that marred the value of the image of God and another human being. What about sexual ethics? I'm gonna keep this kid friendly. But in America, uh, or in Rome, uh, there was a widespread acceptance of practices such as relationships between adult men and young boys, prostitution, extramarital affairs. You've seen the news this week with Ken Paxton. You've seen the news with Lauren Bobert. If you haven't, look it up. We see all of the, the moral ambiguity in our nation's leaders that is related to affairs. Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, the list goes on and on, on both sides of the political spectrum. And so there was a quote I wrote down by, uh, by Paxton's lawyer who said this. I could not believe it. Actually, I could believe it when I read it. He says this. Imagine if, if we impeached everybody here in Austin that had an affair, we'd be impeaching people for the next 100 years. In other words, this is his defense as a lawyer. Hey, we've all done this. This is just the way it is. That's the Roman Empire. When, when our elected officials, the ones who are supposed to represent us, this is their mindset when it comes to morality we have apps like OnlyFans where is legalized prostitution where people pay money for ungodly things. We have the LGBTQ plus community, the T specifically, which is this movement that wants to go and indoctrinate children because they're not going to nursing homes to do reading. This is the thing that we're living in in our country and it's the same thing that was happening in Rome. There was infanticide uh, where, where a couple could have a baby and if the baby had something wrong with it or it was just a female, they could just leave it out in the elements. And it was not uncommon for Romans to walk through the streets and see a baby just sitting there in the gutter, just dying by the elements because it was unwanted, because he or she was unwanted. Since 1973, some estimates have over 60 million babies who have been aborted, which is roughly a quarter percent of our current population in our country. We've aborted roughly a fourth of our country since 1973. 
It's, it's very similar to Rome. So we look at all of this, and, and the fact is the Roman Empire may be gone, but its spirit is alive and well in the United States of America. This is where we live. So listen, Tate Springs, when, when we read the book of Romans, we're not just reading a history book about some things that happened to Christians a long time ago in a different country that no longer exists. We are talking about a reality that is very present for where we are living in right now, which is why this book is so important, because we need to understand God's expectations for how when we get off the, the proverbial tour bus and we're sitting there in a country that we don't recognize, that we don't speak the same words and we don't know how to get home, we need the Lord's compass for, for this. And this is what Paul does here in verses one and seven. So the second point and the final point that we have is this, is that though we are in Rome, we are in Christ. So you might be listening and saying, man, I, I'm feeling really scared. I, how am I supposed to, to deal with all of these things happening in, in the world? Well, here's the good news for us, that although we are in Rome, we are also in Christ. Look with me again at verse one. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the glory of God. Verse seven, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, call the saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul opens up his, his letter with a bunch of descriptions. All of these adjectives, all of these things where he's describing uh, different things. He's describing himself. He's describing Christians in that day. And, uh, and some are about both. What I wanna do with our time today is really uh, find out which which descriptions does this, this Paul give, which, one of, which ones apply to us? How does, this, how does this make a difference for us? And there are at least three different descriptions insofar as I can discern. And the first one is this, when he talks at the very beginning and he describes himself as a bond servant. In, uh, in Greek, this is uh, the word uh, doulos. And, uh, and it is a word that means slave. It means servant. In the context of the Roman Empire, Paul says that he, as he looks around at all the slaves, he says, you know what? I'm a slave, and I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. And, uh, and so a slave is someone that was in a permanent state of servitude to another person. And so Paul is referencing himself. He's the bondservant. But later in Romans chapter 6, verse 22, he, he talks about how all believers are bondservants. All believers are uh, a doulos. And, uh, and, and the idea is, is that you are actually, and this is intentionally strong language, the idea that he's given us is that you are in servitude to your master, Jesus, and he is our owner. Now, if this makes us uncomfortable, and it does because of the American context with the background that we have, but Paul is writing in a, in, in a context that is not dissimilar. So let me take a second just to explain what he means here because, because obviously he's not endorsing slavery. There's no endorsing of slavery. But it's worth noting that in the Jewish context, there was a tradition based on Old Testament law, which comes from Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15. Exodus 21, 5 through 6 for you note takers and Deuteronomy 15, 16 through 17, which says this, that after about six years, you could choose to remain with your master out of love and out of loyalty. And this servant, if he or she, uh, she so cho chose to do this, they would have uh, an all driven through their ear into a doorpost. Now, here's why that would happen, because a door was a very public place. 
And so it was a public thing. And the awl is like an ice pick, and so it was a permanent mark in your ear. And the reason it was in your ear is because it was probably symbolic of the fact that you are listening uh, and you are hearing the things uh, that are being said by your master. And so you put all this together, and, and what comes out of this when Paul uses this word uh, to talk about himself and to talk about us is that he's drawing a parallel to the Christian context where believers see ourselves as willingly and lovingly bound to Christ, not out of compulsion, but of, out of deep love and gratitude for the one who gave everything for us. So he establishes his authority here, in, in other words, as he's opening up this book in a, in a paradoxical manner, because even though he's an apostle with significant authority, in the early church, he identifies himself with humility and servitude, which, by the way, is exactly the heart of Jesus. Mark chapter 9, verse 35 says that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven would be a servant to all, and no one represents more this better than Jesus Christ. So we are owned by God. Here's a second thing he tells us. He says, set apart for the gospel of God there in verse 1. Set apart for the gospel of God. So set apart, the idea or the word there means to mark off by boundaries, with the intent that you are designated for a particular purpose. And so if you are in small groups across the street right now, you know we've moved all of our, uh, as we're uh, getting ready to fix the AC units in building A, we've put all of the classes in building B. And so when you go in there, it used to be that you walk in, you can go this way or this way, but there are always these doors, these boundaries there to protect anyone from walking in to the children's area. We, keep, we wanna keep our children safe. But with the AC units, we've had to put the adult classes along the left side of the hall. And then there's a kind of a big foyer area in the middle with office space and such. And then on the right side, we have the, the kids' rooms. Uh, and then in the back is a big open room. And, uh, and to try to protect uh, the sides, you have uh, these boundaries that have been set back there. So you can't just walk back and just go through the back way. It's been set apart. It's been separated. That's what this word means here. And it's a phrase that Paul uses to suggest that his life and his mission have been distinctively set apart and set aside for the designated purpose of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to be set apart has quite a bit of history in the scriptures. Israel was set apart as a nation holy unto God. They were to be a nation that the other nations looked at and, and, and to see that he was the one true God, not any of the other fake gods out there. Uh, the prophets were set apart by God. The temple was a building set apart by God. The temple had utensils that were set apart for God. And then when you get to verse seven, Paul personifies the idea of being set apart when he says, uh, he, he says, to those who are called as saints, the word saints means exactly the same thing, to be set apart. So it's the noun version of the verb to be set apart. And a saint is a powerful word because what he means there is, is a word that refers to all believers. Because sometimes we like to think of some believers as being more set apart than others. Well, I don't, that guy is super duper holy. But you know what? He's really set apart for God. And I don't really need to, to worry about holiness in my life because I'm not that set apart. I'm just a little bit set apart. But that's not what the word saints means. And saints is, a, is addressed to all the recipients of this letter, all of the early Christians, and it also is addressed to you. It's also important because in Rome, our own government in our country, by the way, is based off of how Rome did it. And so there's a, there's a clear hierarchy. 
of how things operate. Well, in the kingdom of God, what Paul is telling us here, think about this, he's writing this letter in the Roman Empire that has created this newfound governmental hierarchy that, that is taking the world by storm, and he uses a word that levels out every single citizen in God's kingdom as a saint that is set apart. And it's essentially what he tells the believers in Galatia in chapter three, verse 28, when he says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither male nor female, there's neither slave nor free man, but there's only one in Christ Jesus. And so what he means by the word saint is that, listen, we are all in this together. We are all in this together. Some of us may be teachers and small group leaders and deacons, and, and some of us serve in the hospitality ministry, which might be behind closed doors. We have wonderful saints serving in the nursery right now, but listen, we are all one in the kingdom of heaven. There's not a single one of us that is more set apart by God than someone else. That's what he means when he tells us that we are set apart by God. And the last description he gives is beloved of God. Beloved of God there in verse seven, to all who are beloved of God. The word beloved translates the Greek word agapetos, which is derived from the Greek word agape, which we've heard before. If you watched the Super Bowl a year or two ago, they had a really great uh, sermon on one of the uh, commercials there. And uh, every new Greek student preaches all of the words for the Greek word for love, so we're not gonna get into that right now. But what he's doing here is he's talking about, he's talking about, how the Roman believers are beloved of God and he is emphasizing their identity in the midst of the backdrop of the Roman Empire as people who are loved deeply by God because the word agape is the highest form of love. So these saints, these saints of God have this high calling of love, this high calling of love. Uh, yesterday I did something on my bucket list I figured, you know, I'll turn 40, I might as well start kicking, getting these things off the bucket list before I kick it, right? And, um, and uh, it was a highly uh, sanctifying experience. Uh, and it was uh, watching all three of the Lord of the Rings movie in sequential order in one day. That's what I did yesterday, y'all. And, uh, and so it was, uh, man, it was a great day. And listen, that's the way to watch the movies, okay? If you ever wanna watch them, just set apart a day, set apart the day, get the boundaries around your life and say, this is what I'm doing today. It, the Lord has called me to this. And, um, you know, it's really great because you see the storytelling uh, amp up. I won't get into all that. But as you're watching that, the ring, I noticed as we were preparing to watch one of the, uh, the final movies, it, it, it had all of the characters. Gollum was played by Andy Serkis and so on and so forth. And then it said the ring and it had some guy's name. And I said, the ring, the ring has, a, has an actor behind it. And, uh, and, and sure enough, you know, the ring whispers and there's some character just, and I was like, I would have done that. I would have done it for probably a lot cheaper than whatever they paid him for. But in the course of the story of the Lord of the Rings, the reason the story I think has resonated for so long, all of these years to so many people is because it is a story about the power of power, the power and the, uh, the, the desire for power and influence. And I see it everywhere. I see it in the Southern Baptist Convention. I see it in local churches. We certainly see it in the government. We see it in communities. And so there's this little bitty thing that has a lot of power and influence and whoever holds it becomes suddenly the most powerful. And so the question is always there, the tension of, is there someone who is innocent enough to take this thing and destroy it once and for all so that no one can wield it again in a negative and evil way? But of course, that's, 
uh, we see how it was used in, uh, in, in the history of that. And, and I was thinking about that as I was looking at this this morning. Because when we start putting all of these things together that, that Paul is giving us here in, in the opening verses of Romans, he's telling us that we are part of, we have an identity and we are part of a kingdom and we are part of a community that transcends and is outside of all the way and all the corruption and all the things that happen in the context of the way the world is, is unfolding in our own image. And so when he says we are beloved of God, it means, listen, your identity is not in all of the things that you can find your identity with in the world. It's in God. And so I want to do something as we begin to close this sermon that is a little different. Because we could talk about the power of the word beloved and the power of the word God. We know those things as followers of Jesus. I'm going to trust that we do. So I don't want to focus on the adjectives or on the nouns or on the subjects or the objects. I want to focus instead in our closing moments on this, on the prepositions of these descriptions. A preposition is a little helper word. It shows where something is or how things relate to each other how things connect. And so if I make the sentence, if I say the sentence, the basketball is on the court, all right? The basketball is on the court. You have subject, object, and you have preposition. The the way that you know where the basketball is is by the tiniest word in the sentence. It's a bridge. It's a powerful word. It's a powerful way uh, to describe something in a sentence. Paul does this here in these opening words. He, he gives us a bridge to help us to understand all of the descriptions he's talking about as we have Rome as our backdrop, and he's talking about what it means to be in Christ. This is what he's saying. Are you ready for the prepositions? When you put all these together, we see that believers are bond servants owned by God who are set apart for God and beloved of God. Those three little bitty words, those three bridges connect the dots between us and Christ as we are in Rome. And so this tension is here, which is this, in the midst of our own Rome, how can we stand secure in Christ? And the answer is this, is that the prepositions of Paul's propositions show us our position in Christ. And so, you know, we look at this and we know that we're in Rome, but we also know that we are in Christ as a kid, I was fascinated and still am. I'm excited about the men's camp out this uh, next weekend because I want to see the stars. And uh, when you get away from the city, you can look up and you can see the stars in ways. There's so much going on there that you don't see when it, because of the light pollution uh, when you're in cities like, like ours. And, uh, and I was fascinated and, and um, still am. And I was thinking uh, about an astronaut who goes into space. Space is a dangerous place. You don't, you don't just want to walk into space without, without some kind of help. The temperature in some places can be hotter than the surface of the sun. It can be cooler than the coldest day on the planet. It, there, there's loss of oxygen. There's radiation. There's all these things happening. And so if you are going to live and operate in outer space, then guess what? You need some help. If you're going to be in space, you need to be in a spacesuit. You need to be in something that's gonna control the temperature. You need to be in something that's gonna help control the oxygen. You need to be in something that's gonna protect you from all of the elements that are out there. Paul, when he gives us these, these three descriptions that we are owned by God, set apart for God, and we are beloved of God, what he's telling us is this, is that we are in this terrible, 
terrible place that is all these elements coming at us to, to suffocate the life out of us, but yet it's as if we are in a spacesuit because we are in Christ. Listen, I know you're tired. I am too. We are entering into next year what is going to be a terrible political season, and I'm not looking forward to it. Some of your own Thanksgiving dinner tables are still divided over what happened three years ago. Some of your own households are divided over what happened a few years ago. Economically, it's rough. Politically, it's rough. The pandemic, I mean, this is a really difficult time. I see people struggling in deep, deep ways that I've not seen in my life. And so in the midst of all that, we are standing in a room and we're trying to navigate our way home And Paul gives us a really simple reminder here, which is this. And someone, I hope, is encouraged by this. If you believe that Jesus is Lord, then although you are in Rome with all the things happening, you are in Christ. And here's what that means. In the book of Daniel, there's this vision where he sees all of these kingdoms rising up. And some commentators say that, that they are the nations of Greece rising up, these world powers, and Rome rising up, and Medo Persia rising up, and Babylon rising up. And, and, and ultimately, Rome is the culmination of all of that. And, and he sees all this, but then he sees this other kingdom that overcomes all of the other kingdoms, and it's the kingdom of Christ. And he says, this is a kingdom that will not be shaken, that will not be destroyed. Sometimes it's hard for us as we live in Rome to feel like that we won't be shaken. And we feel the quivers of the earthquake all around us. But Paul is reminding us that we are in Christ. So through Rome's roads we roam, but in Christ we find our home. So listen, if you are a follower of Jesus today, be encouraged. Because Paul has some great, insights for us and encouragement for us as we make our way through our modern day Rome. For those of us who are listening, tuning in maybe, who say, well, I don't think I have that security. I think I'm trying to float around in space without a spacesuit. Then we want to introduce you to go, uh, encourage you rather to go onto our website and click, I want to know more about Jesus at tatesprings.com. And that'll be a, a small but significant step in learning what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we bow our, our heads today, and, and Lord, we know um, the reality of the world in which we live. And Lord, I want to pray for, for the saints of Tate Springs that you would encourage us, that as we know of all the things that are happening in our own world, I want to pray that you would keep us encouraged in Christ. And for those today who need to be encouraged specifically, I just pray that you would work in their hearts and in their, in their souls to just know to hold on to you not to build up our own faith and try to bring in our own elements and have our own sort of pantheon in our own hearts, but Lord, just to hold on to the old truth that has never been shaken, that has never been moved. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you, Lord, that we are bonded to you and thank you for setting us apart. May we feel it, Lord. May we feel it as the world presses in against us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. At Tate Springs, we believe God is telling a story of redemption that can only be found in Jesus Christ. If you'd like more information on how you can have that kind of a relationship, please visit tatesprings.com and let us know. We love you and want to help you discover your part in God's story.